and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anata and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. Gambling addiction is a stain on our society, and I'm trying to talk about it more and more with guests on the Just Checking In pod. Gambling and football are so intertwined nowadays, it is often hard for people to think about one without the other. Betting companies sponsor football club stadiums, shirt deals, podcasts, YouTube channels, interrupt your halftime intervals with adverts or highlight videos online. They are truly everywhere. And in a way that goes far beyond the outstretched arms of, say, alcohol companies because of the way that they are regulated. Many betting companies get popular celebrities to front their marketing campaigns to try and detoxify their brand and try and persuade the next generation of young people to start putting on accumulators or open betting accounts. In this episode, I'm checking with someone who is working to combat this trend and try and limit the influence of gambling over football without banning it altogether. His name is Tom Fleming and he works for The Big Step. The Big Step is a campaign project formed and run by people who have suffered gambling harm. They are one part of Gambling With Lives, a charity set up by bereaved family members and friends who have lost loved ones to gambling-related suicide. Together, they advocate for a public health approach to preventing gambling harms, which would include an end to all gambling promotion, especially in football. In this episode, we talk about how Tom got involved in The Big Step, the work they do, and the impact that gambling addiction has on people's mental health and also why it's so important that there is a greater check on gambling's influence on football. We also discussed Tom's personal gambling addiction story, how his addiction affected his finances, his relationship, and other parts of his life. We also discussed how having eczema as a baby impacted his life growing up as well. So this is how our conversation went. Tom, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so, so much for letting me check in with you. As soon as I came across the big step. I'm not really sure how I came across it, but I was so keen to get you on and give your charity a platform because it is doing such unbelievable work. And I'm really keen to cover the topic of gambling addiction more than just checking in pod. First off, how are you, mate? How are you getting on? I'm not so bad, thanks. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm good, thanks, man. I'm good. We are recording this on a Friday morning. I'm recording this on my day off, so nice and chill, nice and easy. We've got loads of stuff to, to crack on with, mate, and I really want to discuss the walk, especially that you did recently from Scotland to Wembley for the big step. So shall we just crack on with the show? Yeah, sounds good to me. The reason we're talking today, Tom, is because of the work you do with The Big Step. So let's talk about it now. I've explained what the charity does in the intro, but just tell the listeners how you got involved, how the charity started, maybe your role itself, and then the work the charity does. Yeah, so The Big Step is actually a campaign group, part of the charity Gambling With Lives, that was set up by loved ones who've been bereaved by gambling-related suicides. The Big Step was set up a few years ago, and the idea of The Big Step was started as a fundraising walk to highlight the relationship between football and gambling and how it kind of gotten out of control. The big step was 
initially set up to do that via walking to different kind of clubs with gambling sponsors and see if they could talk to people there and get their input to see really how, how aware they were about it. And it started in 2019 by James Grimes, the founder. And I only got involved with the charity last year, so I, w I wasn't really around for the, the first few walks. But as I understand, the, the first walk was kind of like 10 or 15 people. The second one, perhaps kind of around 20 or 30. The third one, which was in September 2019, was, was a bit bigger. And then the first one that I was here for was the fourth one, which we did in March of this year, which was obviously a bit of a different one because of COVID. We held that one remotely, which actually played into our hands quite a lot because people could get involved from wherever they were, wherever they lived, you know, if they were just going out for a walk that weekend, they could go to their kind of local stadium around the park to the shops or anything. And how, the, the way we kind of managed that was we got an app called the Big Team Challenge. So people would register on the website, download this app, you can make a team, and then the app basically tracks all the steps that you take automatically. Like if you've got a Fitbit or a Garmin, it, it syncs to that. And we found that was a really Although it was kind of leading up to it, we were, you know, it was obviously COVID makes everything more difficult, doesn't it, logistically? But I think that really did play into our hands and it helped us to kind of capitalise on that. Because if you remember back in March, it was we were just coming out of the kind of most hideous of hideous winters. People wanted to get out and about, people wanted the exercise. There was a kind of, perhaps more of a kind of community and support spirit around compared to what there might have been perhaps last year or the year before. And what we did see there was we grew, that was our, the biggest walk to date in terms of the people who took part. We had over 300 people take part. A lot of the people took part what didn't have direct experience of gambling harms, whereas the previous three walks, as I said, I wasn't here for them. But as I understand them, they were they were mainly people probably in recovery or maybe a kind of partner there to support them. The fourth one in March really felt like a, a bit of a watershed moment in terms of branching out and getting other people on board and the message widening basically. And it, it wasn't just people in recovery who, who didn't want to see gambling ads. Like we got real sense then that the public tide of opinion was beginning to turn, mm. which thankfully as we, we've kind of seen that continue since March as well. Amazing. You just did another walk, which you just mentioned literally 30 seconds previously, which was a 300 mile trip from Scotland to Wembley in the run up to the Euros, which is the time recording is still going on. It's coming up to the first knockout games. It was between England and Scotland, which you did it, the game, the walk to, sorry. What was that experience like in comparison to the other walks you've done? And, and given the tournament excitement that rolls around, do you think this one got the same attention as the others or did it get perhaps subsumed by the tournament or was it helped by the tournament? Full disclaimer, I should mention that I was only able to join for, for four of the days. It was a 10-day walk. It was a group of about 30 people did the whole thing and they were joined for, because it's, it's quite a big sort of ask to ask people physically. It's a big ask because it's kind of like you're doing 30 miles most days and also time-wise it's, it's a big ask to, to ask everyone to do that so we did have a group of about 30 core people doing it and then people came to join on separate days so there were it did kind of fluctuate 10 days set up from Gretna on Friday and then by the following Sunday we turned up at Wembley there was a lot of kind of noise around because of the background of the, the gambling act review which I'm sure we'll touch on later and as I mentioned before, the tide in opinion, perhaps against gambling ads, there was a lot of noise around that before the walk. And I think we managed to kind of to ride that wave of tension quite well. As we were going along, there was barely a, a lunch break where there wasn't somebody going off to sit in a quiet place to do a radio interview. Uh, a few lunch breaks, we had news teams turn up even after the walk. 
James, the founder, he was interviewed by uh, Der Spiegel, you know, the, the German magazine. So it's we're, we're kind of gaining traction on the continent, which is good. And yeah, I think I think as well, just the headline of 30 people walking from England to Scotland, I think really does get people. So yeah, it, this one did continue the pattern that every walk we've done has kind of gathered more attention and got a lot of press attention, mm. a lot of media attention. A uh, lot of social media attention. And actually, I'm not sure if you saw it. So on the Monday of the walk, there was a, a Channel 4 documentary that went out on gambling. Uh, it's called Football's Relationship Problem with Gambling, I think. It was presented by Ruth Davidson, who is the former Scottish Conservative leader. And we found that, that after that, James, the founder of The Big Step, was featured on that. Gambling with Lives was spoken about on that. And after that, because we walk in, The Big Step branding is kind of yellow. So we had yellow T-shirts, yellow hoodies yellow hats so you'd get this kind of sea of yellow walking down a country lane between Manchester and Preston and we did get quite a lot of toots of encouragement before but I can certainly recognise and attest to the fact that after that documentary went out on the Monday people were kind of tooting as they drove past thumbs up we'd set up a buy me a coffee thing where you can donate to you know buy us a drink or buy us dinner and we got a lot of donations from there people who were just driving past who saw a sea of yellow t-shirts walking along and then went to, to google us look, look us up and donate some money to help us keep going essentially we also spoke to a lot of members of the public i was on one of the days that i was there i was waiting outside a bakery for a i believe it was a blt sandwich in the morning actually which was very nice and a couple of guys came up to me and spoke to me and asked what they what i was doing and they said you know that's great we love football and it's just it's become hijacked in recent years a lady came up to me just after these guys had left and said that her husband had just come off the back of a 20-year gambling addiction. Thankfully, he'd managed to finally seek some treatment, but the story that she told was one that we hear a lot, that, you know, he sunk into this addiction. He wouldn't get help because he didn't think he had a problem. He'd found an online tool called GamStop to block himself from all online bookmakers, but then he just started going into the bookies. But thankfully, finally, she said last year, he got some addiction specific treatment and therapy and the phrase she used was I've got my husband back I've got the man I married back amazing um, when we were staying in a hotel uh, one of the hotels the, the chap behind the bar he came and spoke to us about his gambling addiction and it we just kind of scratched the surface of this I mean the route was long but just given how many people we actually interacted with on the route and how many of these people knew somebody or had issues themselves with gambling just really kind of shines a light on the scale of of the issue really mm. you largely had positive media coverage but i believe i saw a quote from one person in the gambling industry who said and i believe the quote was sunday school prohibitionists i'm not mm-hmm. gonna obviously name and shame the person but what would you say to people who claim that you just want to <laughs> abolish or ban gambling completely i'm playing devil's advocate here obviously but what would you say to those people Am I allowed to name and shame him? It's got contextual info. Yeah, go on then. I mean, I'm not yet. Okay, so the guy who said that is a, a fella called Michael Duger. He used to be a new Labour MP, actually. And now he works for the Betting and Gaming Council, which is essentially a, the industry lobby group. And first off, I'd say that we don't want to ban gambling at all. I fully support the big step, fully supports people's rights to gamble should they wish. We need to kind of change the public perception of gambling and we need to realise that it is a is a potentially harmful product and people are being harmed by it, which would mean adopting a, a similar kind of stance on it to perhaps smoking, where, you know, it's just a free country. You can smoke if you like. I haven't seen a smoking advert in 20 years, but I know exactly where to buy a packet of cigarettes, should I wish. 
no one is stopping me from doing that. And that is what we're after, really. And we've seen, because there's quite a lot of pressure at the minute with the Gambling Act review, and as I mentioned, the, the general public tide of opinion turning a little bit, we've seen the Betting and Gaming Council use kind of different, cynically say, tactics kind of against us. And one of them is that we're somehow morally opposed to kind of gambling because I suppose if they can successfully push that then it doesn't make us look good but I would like to say that yeah I would like to stress we don't want to ban gambling at all we're not prohibitionists we're anti-gambling harm is what we are we're not anti-gambling at all and it's a big long process of, of getting the way that gambling is is looked at gambling addiction is looked at to get that changed into a into a more public health focused approach is what we want not to not to ban gambling at all it's an easy way to drum up a bit of cynically, I might say, rabble rousing. It's an easy way to kind of discredit us by, by saying, oh, you know, these guys, they've had issues with gambling themselves, so they just want to ban it. But it's totally untrue. We have a kind of unique experience because we know what it's like, but we've all accepted that, you know, what happened to us happened to us. Nothing can change that. We just don't want it to happen to, to more people. The reason we're talking today, Tom, is because of the relationship with football and gambling. And you mentioned there one of the passers-by who said, you know, that football and gambling is so intertwined now, and I've said this in the intro. Can you give me the context behind that and some statistics, if you can, about gambling addiction numbers in the UK and its relationship with football? Because many people would assume, and I previously assumed, that the majority of those affected will be men because stereotypically a lot of men are interested in football obviously there's a lot of women who are interested in football but a lot of the population of men who go to games or bet seem to be men am i right or am i wrong so i'll go back to the beginning of that question there and concrete stats are hard to come by with regards to to men and women but if we just focus for a second on the overall amount of gambling addicts in the uk the sort of lowest conservative estimates put the number around 430,000 and that's kind of industry-sponsored research. So yeah, as I say, that's the lower end of the scale. Doesn't take into account stigma then, does it? No. And then at the higher end of the scale, we've got about 1.2 million and that's only adults I'm talking about. There are also 55,000 children already addicted to gambling. The charity Gambling With Lives, who The Big Step is a part of, they commissioned some research, uh, some very interesting independent research. A lot of the problem with research is... A lot of it's funded by the gambling industry, essentially, so it tells you what they want you to hear. But we know from independent research that there are between 250 and 650 gambling-related suicides in the UK every year, which is, a, even if you take the lowest estimate of that, of 250, that's one every working day. It means today somebody will kill themselves because of their gambling addiction. And gambling addicts are 15 times more likely to take their own lives than members of the general population. I mean, those stats, you know, they're fairly hideous and... With regards to men and women, there are certainly less women that come forward, I think. Although a wonderful woman on the walk with us last week called Stacey, who she's been in the in the news quite a lot. She read a book? Yes, she has, The Girl Gambler. Yeah. She was fantastic and she was walking with us. I, I saw a video clip with her where she said for eight years of her addiction, she'd wake up every day and kind of give herself a hard time because she thought she was the only woman in the world mm. who was addicted to gambling. And I believe as well, I saw a stat that 55,000 women registered with GamStop last year, which is a service that is a kind of third party service that you sign up with online and it basically self excludes you from every online bookmaker that can operate in the UK. 
so 55,000 is a lot. But I think you're right, I think often for men, boys actually, let's say boys, football is sort of the hook that can get you into gambling. If you try and engage with the game now, the ads are everywhere, you know. It's actually been quite nice to watch the Euros without having the ads and the sponsors plastered all over the kits. And I think I'm right in saying that there's been none on the, the stadium advertising hordes. But, you know, you watch the Premier League, and even obviously the league below now, the English Football League is now the, the Skybet Championship, Skybet League One, Skybet League Two. It is practically impossible to engage with football as a product without being exposed to gambling somehow. And I think as a result of that, sorry, we, we've got a kind of generation of people growing up who think that it's an essential part of football is to place a bet because. Why else would people be running around playing football with essentially call to actions plastered all over their shirts, watch the adverts on Sky or BT and during halftime and stuff and you get things like masses more when there's money on it. It's a massive problem. Important as well to highlight, I think, from my perspective that gambling's not a kind of homogenous activity. There are different forms of gambling, so which all carry kind of different addiction rates. And quite often what we see is, and the worst the products, I should say, that, that carry the worst addiction rates are things like slots, online casino. They're essentially an algorithm. You're playing an algorithm that's been programmed by somebody to beat you, and it will beat you. But what we see often is is people, football acts as that hook, and then once people are sucked into gambling, they often get cross-sold these more addictive products. You know, you sign up for a Typical kind of example might be you sign up for, you see a free bet for, I don't want to name a specific betting company, but you see a free bet for whoever. Sign up to get that bet, go from there, and then you start getting into it. You're putting a fiver on a tenner on here or there, which isn't really a problem in itself, but then you start getting cross-sold free spins on slots, on casino games, on, as I mentioned before, just algorithms that are just built by people who are very clever and who will just beat you and these worse products they carry addiction rates of up to 50 percent 50 percent is it's high it's higher than i believe smoking when we conjure images previously of people who bet tom we might think of i don't want to use the i think it's the most pc phrase i can use down and out smoking outside mm -hmm. a betting shop they might be stereotypically older men and betting shops themselves are quite a grim fixture in a community I would say you know some people might feel like there's a stigma of going there or embarrassment if someone sees them they might report back to who someone they know and then gossip spreads around now most betting is done online so people can do it from the comfort of their own homes and young people are getting bombarded with ads on YouTube instead of late night bingo ads on TV because stereotypically not as many young people were watching TV We've also seen, and I've said this in the intro, more podcasts, YouTube channels, influencers and celebrities accept sponsorship deals by betting companies, Tom. Actor Ray Winston is almost as synonymous with fronting a popular betting company's adverts and his slogans on it than he is with his acting career, probably with the younger people now. They might only view him because of that. One such ad he did even broke advertising standards of right and saying, you know, I've got nothing against Ray Winston doing that. He needs to make money. You know, everyone's entitled to, to do what they want. But how is this muddying the waters when it comes to people's perception of betting companies, maybe even glamorizing it and possibly when it comes to Ray Winston, masculinity too? Yeah, I think it's huge. I think, you, yeah, you touched on a, on a really important point, I think, with the reality of like inside a betting shop. I often think as a sort of counter ad we should just go and, and film in there because they're bleak places aren't they there's often kind of fight breaking out and obviously with covid now there has to be screens up to protect the cashiers from covid but they've been up long before because people might get violent yeah they are not happy places and often 
they sit on the complete other end of the scale to what you might see on an advert where everyone's kind of happy they're down the pub with their mates it's typically men in fact it's probably 95 percent men well actually i'd go as far as to say on for sports betting adverts it's probably 100 percent men they're happy they're successful you know they're having a laugh i remember a particular advert where they went round the group of lads and it was like, oh, this guy's the professor, like he looks up all the stuff. I remember that one, yeah. This guy's the happy-go-lucky guy. And yeah, I, I think that's massive. And I think the, the normalisation of gambling through advertising techniques like that creates a huge stigma because then if you do go on to develop a gambling problem and you see all these people on television who are happy, they're having a good time, they're relaxed, they're with their pals, that then creates a kind of barrier to access treatment and it actually feeds into the industry narrative that we should focus on faulty individuals you know like it's my fault that I don't look like these people who are having a nice time and doing it responsibly but actually yeah like I mentioned earlier the reality is if you're dealing with you're using products with 30 40 50 percent addiction rates it doesn't take a, a genius to figure out that 30 40 50 percent of the people who play those are going to get addicted and it's not just down to sort of faulty individuals mm. I think you're certainly right about Ray Winston, I remember the advert you mentioned where he was looking down the camera and screaming, bet now, or shouting, bet now. I think you're right for a generation of men who grew up with him as a sort of hard man, I suppose, a, a, perhaps even a kind of a masculine role model. I think that, yeah, it's obviously a very clever and calculated move by the betting company in question. I'm trying to think of who's kind of taken that mantle now. He was sort of late 90s, early 2000s, mm. wasn't he? Don't get too many hard men around now. But Bruce Willis... I mean, there's there's a few American ones, you know, The Rock yeah, or maybe Rock. Chris Hemsworth for Australia. Uh-huh. I'm trying to think of British ones, to be honest. It's more just like Love Islanders now, isn't it? Yeah. Stephen Graham, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, maybe. But again, he's, he's, he's been around of... the block, hasn't he? He's been since the 90s. So yeah, it's hard to right. think of one that maybe young boy... I mean, do you know what, actually? It's probably a YouTuber. It's probably like mm. KSI or someone like yeah. that that the kids are looking up to. So, yeah. Logan Paul. Yeah. I often like to use a kind of smoking or alcohol comparison because essentially our aim is to get gambling harm viewed in the same way as smoking harm and alcohol addiction. If you had, I don't know, let's say Logan Paul advertising beer and just drinking pints and looking into the camera and screaming like, drink now, it would never even clear that being pitched to an advertising agency, let alone actually be on television, as with the Ray Winston one was. They know that. People who run these companies are very successful at what they do. They're very good at what they do. It's not a kind of coincidence. And yeah, I think it all feeds into a sort of wider narrative and discourse that is is ultimately very harmful when it comes to people struggling, essentially. You talked about this rhetoric of problem gamblers, which Mm. gambling addicts have been labelled as in the past off-air to me, Tom. You said Mm. that, ironically, it's a problematic phrase in itself. Why is that? Because, so yeah, if we, if we take, if we go back to the worst products, addiction rates of up to 50%, and then let's say we give 100 people 100 pounds free spins on something with a 50% addiction rate, probably around 50 of those people are going to go on to become problem gamblers, essentially. And the term problem gambler puts all the focus on the individual as some sort of, well, I mean, it says it, doesn't it? A problematic or faulty individual. And in doing so... I think it absolves, well, it misses the point of addiction, that it doesn't matter who you are. Gambling disorder, gambling addiction doesn't discriminate. And what it also does, I think that term is, is it, it absolves the industry, really, of any really meaningful blame. Because so they can say, you know, well, look at this problem gambler. It's his problem, he or her problem. They can't interact or use this product safely. There's something kind of wrong with them. 
as opposed to to giving the addiction and the, the disorder the sort of respect, for want of a better word, that it requires if we're going to actually look at this and treat it positively and reduce gambling harm. We have to focus across the entire society when it comes to reducing gambling harms, not just problem gamblers. Yeah, I don't, I don't really like the term. I'd go with gambling disorder or those addicted to gambling, etc., etc. There are other terms, but I think that is the most widely used for a two-word phrase. I think it packs a lot in and it assumes quite a lot. Gambling addiction still has quite a huge stigma attached to it, Tom, perhaps in different ways to other mental health conditions. One reason for that is because some people don't believe it's a mental health condition, do they? In your opinion, why are they wrong? Well, I believe in uh, 2013 it was classified gambling disorder, which is, for clarity's sake, gambling disorder is the same as problem gambler, is the same as gambling addiction. It's just a different term, but it was classified, I think, in 2013 as a diagnosable psychiatric illness, similar to, to drug and alcohol addiction slash disorder. But I think you're definitely right, there's a lot of stigma around it. And I think perhaps one of the reasons is definitely normalisation, as we've, we've just touched upon in the previous segment, when we talked about kind of advertising and things. And another one is I think if you see someone who is an alcoholic, say, or a, a heroin addict or, or a cocaine addict, there's really simple telling physical signs that they're struggling with something like they're, you know, alcoholic, probably slur their words, uh, you might be able to sort of smell alcohol, bad skin, things like that, cocaine, dilated pupils, touching your nose a lot and kind of sniffing and etc, etc. But with gambling addiction, there are no uniform physical symptoms. That certainly contributes to it, along with the, it's just kind of normalised, because I think people's thought process may be like, how can this be an addiction if we're being pushed it at every football game and every opportunity. It can't be something you can get addicted to because why would they be advertising it at football and in the football breaks and why would it be everywhere if it was something dangerous? The problem is a big beast with many tentacles and it's it's got many many elements to the problem and I, but I think that's quite pertinent when it comes to public perception of it because it's so normalised by its its role in our everyday lives and it's just everywhere. I think people that certainly influences people's thinking on it. And just finally mate what initiatives have the Big Step got coming up, maybe that you can plug, and where can people find it? As we've spoken about, we've just finished our 300-mile walk from Scotland to Wembley. So we are currently in the planning phase of the next campaign. But if you go to the-bigstep.com, we will be posting details on there of the next campaign as and when it's kind of ready. So please do check back there if you can and see how you can get involved and help out and help us spread the word. We do have a petition on the on the site, actually, which we're calling for an end to advertising and sponsorship in football, gambling, advertising and sponsorship, and you'll find the link to that petition on the website. We've talked about The Big Step and all the amazing work it does for gambling addicts, Tom. I want to talk about your journey now. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through... Your early life, teenage years, upbringing, family if you want. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Tom we meet here? I understand as a baby, something happened to you which you've said had or has had a long-term impact on you growing up. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So when I was about, I think it was probably about five or six months old, I developed really like awful eczema. Eczema is a common skin condition, but... It's a common skin condition, you quite often get it like uh, maybe on the way your arms got like the back of your knees maybe on, the, on your elbows because of the sweatiness of those areas. 
I kind of got it really, really, really horrifically to the point where my arms and legs had to be bandaged because if I were to kind of bend my elbows and my knees, the skin would just crack and bleed and stuff. And I developed it actually when when my mum went back to work. So, I mean, obviously I can't remember a lot of this because I was five months old. Having looked back on it as an adult, I've kind of identified quite a lot of ways that that affected me uh, as a young person, as an adult. I think it was probably a bit of separation anxiety as a five-month-old baby. I think in hindsight, if one of my friends now had a baby and they're like, we're going back to work after five or six months, it's, it's too early. So I think that sort of brought it on. And yeah, it stuck around for about, only around about two years. But what it did do, I can remember, if it makes sense, I can remember the, the sensation of having it, just the itch that wouldn't go away. And yeah, we'll tie that into gambling because gambling is sort of an itch that doesn't go away metaphorically. But the physical itch of like the skin just burning and it not being able to go away, it's just an itch and an itch and an itch and an itch. It lasted for about 18 months, two years. But what it did as a, what it did to me as a, as a baby, I think, was it, it kind of pushed me back in terms of development. I think they're quite important years from, well, I mean, they're very important years, one and two and into your threes. But I probably wasn't kind of, doing what normal babies were doing because I was just kind of screaming and crying and stuff and then it it did get sorted and actually got sorted by a a Chinese herbal doctor actually the parents had tried everything you know you get kind of steroid cream hydrocortisone and it goes away a little bit but it comes back with ferocity the next yeah it comes back twice as worse a couple of days later so none of those things really worked so it was was eventually cured by a, a Chinese herbal doctor did come back actually on came back when I was about 11 or 12 on just on one finger on my ring finger actually and yeah that was quite unpleasant the the nail would fall off and stuff and that kind of reminded me I think subconsciously of what it was like as a baby even though I didn't have those actual physical memories you know the body does remember so yeah that would have cleared up when I was about three after that at the time my my parents weren't very happy like it was a bit of a a miserable marriage for them I think and again having kind of looked back at that what babies I think yeah from having discussed this in in therapy and stuff what babies do if they can sense that something is kind of not right at home they often blame themselves because you can't at that age and when you're that small if something's not right and there's a there's a bad atmosphere and it's it's not a nice place the only two people you really know are your parents. These are these people who like feed you and put you to bed and they do everything for you. In that kind of infant mind, you are incapable of thinking that it could sort of be them. You can't really see your parents as flawed people when you're that young, when you're like four, five, six, and they just kind of do everything for you. So quite often, apparently what babies and toddlers might do is they could turn that in on themselves and think that like they had a problem. And I think I internalised my eczema somehow as being like my fault. Like that was my issues, my fault. I kind of caused all this badness and if I didn't have eczema, like everything would be fine. So I think that, yeah, that certainly stuck with me as a toddler and a young child. My parents divorced when I was, they separated when I was eight or nine. We moved into separate houses. It was a sort of long and drawn out messy divorce. And I'm an only child, so I didn't have any sort of brothers or sisters to share the burden with so they yeah I didn't really have anyone to share the burden with and I was kind of stuck in the middle of their crossfire at one point I think yeah just growing up as a young adult then going into kind of early teen years I remember always feeling anxious I'd feel anxious I'd I'd have a bath and I'd get out of the bath and obviously you're hot when you get out of the bath and then like 
if I was still hot like three minutes later, I'd think I must be ill. I must be, like, I'm sweating here, like I'm ill. Can someone take my temperature? And obviously my mum or dad would just be like, it's fine, just had a bath. It would rain and I'd like, it would rain really heavily and I'd like, look at drains and think like, it's going to flood, it's going to flood. <laughs> we used to live on the top of a hill, so it was never going to flood. Yeah, and then as I got a bit older, yeah, like I say, like 12, 13, 14, I started, maybe, actually maybe a little bit younger than that, I would notice stuff on television, on the news, and become like quite anxious about that. Especially I remember there was some kind of face-off of Russia, and they drove a load of nuclear warheads to their eastern border, just obviously in a show of force, that I thought they were going to send nukes over, and you know, we did grow up in Somerset, so there weren't many planes flying overhead, but if there were a kind of plane or a vapour trail in the sky, I might worry about that. Looking back on it, it's hard to tell where, like I said, because I don't remember kind of getting the eczema, and then I obviously internalised a lot of stuff from there, but I don't know where the kind of anxiety came from, like if the eczema caused the anxiety, if anxiety caused the eczema, or if it's a bit of both, they're quite often associated, yeah, closely associated with each other. And growing up, coming to an adult, I think uh, I was quite behind at school, like when I was kind of 15, 16, I was just not really interested. There was the kind of after effects of the divorce and stuff. I was just disinterested, really. I didn't really care about very much. And at that age, anyway, people don't really care too much about school, but I was probably switched off quite a lot. I'd say I don't really remember feeling particularly anxious when I was perhaps a young adult. I probably came into my own quite a bit there. I didn't do any A-levels, but I did AS levels, and then I left, and then I got a job. And then I kind of went away travelling, and I came back and then decided to go to university. don't remember feeling anxious at all then. And I think anxiety then probably made a kind of a small scale return when it came to kind of finishing university and, you know, like getting a job and like real life stuff that I've probably been putting off for a while, especially, you know, money, because I did everything a bit late, that constant feeling of like, you know, trying to catch up to people and the gambling. Shall I touch on whether... The, yeah, let's talk about the gambling, gambling mate, because... Part of the reason you joined The Big Step was because of your own gambling addiction and the journey you've been on to address and recover from it. Can you tell me how this story began, first of all, what gambling initially provided for you, what it gave you, and then how it turned from a fun leisure activity into something much, much darker? My hook into gambling was football. I'd always, always loved football, still do. But as a, as a young child, like I was always really into it and had quite a kind of odd brain for remembering stats and figures. Even I remember obviously collecting football stickers as pretty much everyone, all the lads I knew got, did. Got need, got was, need badly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Swapsies, got Shearer shiny somewhere. I remember... Showing your age, mate, that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember collecting them and yeah, I remember like getting my, my mum and dad to, to, to quiz me. Like they'd flip through and I'd be like, They'd name a, a team and ask me to like name everyone in there. I could I could always remember stuff like that. Even now, I can always remember like football scores, who scored in a particular game, etc., etc. I think probably like a lot of other people, I thought I had a bit of an edge because I I could remember all this stuff. And I think I placed my first bet when I was either sixteen or seventeen. I did open an online account. They did ask for verification, but there's a kind of period where you can gamble whilst they're they're verifying your ID. So I just did that. That's probably, problematic. That is very problematic. But I think it probably started because I, I was kind of relatively taller than average at that age. I actually used to know 
the girl who worked in the bookies, she was a she's a friend in the friendship group. She was a few years older, obviously. So she kind of let some of us in there who were 16, 17, who, who, would, who could get away with it. Looking back on it then, I, I certainly, it certainly wasn't a problem then. I mean, I could easily then just put five or ten pounds on and lose it and be a bit annoyed for a little while. But that was fine, I'd say. I don't remember too much about, about perhaps the coming years. I mentioned that I, I went away travelling for a while and then I went to university. I certainly don't think it was like a thing in the, in the first and second year at university. Perhaps maybe the second year, actually. So maybe when I was kind of like 23, 24, perhaps picked it up a little bit more, like got back into watching football, Saturdays, sticking accumulator on. And there the were times when I think I remember one evening where I think I was, I think I maybe lost about 50 quid, which is not very much at all really now, but as a student. As a student, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a, a lot. lot. Yeah, and I was, when I looked back at my bank statement, I hadn't realised that it had been 50 quid. I, I remember that. And then, yeah, as I got to third year, so, you know, you kind of have, like, the leases on student houses are always to summer, aren't they? And you kind of hand in your bits and bobs around maybe Easter, just after Easter, get the dissertation in, had an exam. And then we were sort of left with a two-month period, I guess, where it was all done. Uni was done. No one had a job. And knew you were kind of moving out in a couple of months, but there was just all of a sudden, like, nothing to do. I think that must have been around, say, late April. I remember then... I kind of started gambling more than I should have done. Again, still it wasn't, if that was if it happened in isolation, I wouldn't say it was awful then. And also on, on your mind then is like, you know, the fun's over, uni's over. You need to start thinking about a job, like what are you going to do? You're applying for all these jobs. What are you going to do? You're going to move to London, need money. So I perhaps foolishly started looking at it then, you know, instead of a fun leisure time activity, I started exploring it as a like, I could make some money off this. Like this could be a potential income source that was probably the first time when I started to view it as a potential income source but I perhaps still would say that it it wasn't necessarily a a major problem in its own then yeah I graduated uni when I was 26 a couple of steps behind friends and stuff obviously because you're four or five years older than most people and I moved to London got a job that didn't pay very well at the time well pay even worse if I had it now but it wasn't a lot of money yeah that was when I started to again to kind of hark back to that if I could supplement my income with 500 quid a month gambling winnings like that would probably do me for now. At the time you were also having some relationship issues I believe and you were gambling in the days before they reduced the minimum stake on fixed betting terminals from £100 to £2 so it was really quite a dangerous period to be a gambling addict essentially. How did that cocktail take you down a darker path when it came to your gambling addiction and did that reduce the amount of self-control you had knowing how easily you could lose large amounts of money in minutes like that basically let alone hours yeah I think it definitely did yeah I was in a relationship that was great to start with and then it kind of fall apart for a, a ton of reasons and gambling was certainly a way to kind of escape that I should mention that I only ever gambled on football I don't think I ever opened any of the emails with the free spins, so I'm I'm lucky in that respect because the fixed odd betting terminals are when they were a hundred pounds a spin. I'm very glad I didn't get into those. I it just boggles yeah, my so mind, was, doesn't it, just to yeah. think about that that being a thing back then. Yeah, of course. And the kind of odd thing is those games are still available online with no maximum stake. Twenty four seven. Crazy, isn't Jesus it? Jesus Christ. So yeah, I was always it was always football for me. It was always accumulator when things were probably approaching rock bottom, 
I would kind of plan a day around it. Like, okay, let's pick five teams, but let's pick like an early kickoff. Although actually I came to learn that early kickoffs never go how you think they're going to go. I don't know if it's something to do with like the rest of the games are yet to be played. You don't know what you need going into the weekend, but I'd kind of stagger them. So I'd have like a whole day, like a 12 o'clock, maybe three o'clock, five o'clock, seven o'clock. And then you kind of get desperate after that. And you're looking at like Vietnamese B leagues and stuff. Even though I wasn't gambling on fob tees or, or any kind of casino games, this was before the credit card ban was introduced. So I was essentially able to gamble money that I didn't have. I'm thankful that for a lot of people that can no longer do that with credit cards. It just kind of lost control, really. Like, as I was really unhappy in other parts of my life, gambling was just something that was, I mean, obviously couldn't control it, but perhaps that cycle was somehow comforting, familiar, I don't know, to be in that, like, right, it's Saturday, get these things on. You know, you can be in a kind of intensely horrible situation and just constantly checking your phone and you're not really there, are you? You're not present, are you? Yeah. No, and I am lucky enough that my rock bottom was shortly after the relationship ended. Yeah, my rock bottom was there. In terms of money, I didn't lose as much as other people have, probably around about £10,000. Not a small amount of money, but I was able to pay it off. It's not great, it's not horrendous, (laughs) comparatively, is it? No, and I was sort of privileged in that I, I could pay it off I know I'm I'm lucky and looking back on it looking back on the addiction the thing that kind of sticks out is the money's always seen as like a primary driver and I'm guilty of falling into that trap because I just measured my own experience against others experiences by saying it wasn't as bad because I didn't lose as much money but actually looking back on it the worst bit is how it makes you feel it just makes the kind of shame that kind of horrible feeling when something loses in the last minute and I, I remember actually putting my last bet on I couldn't wait for it actually just to lose I reached a point where I just couldn't do that to myself anymore I hate the feeling of just the shame and the embarrassment so put a bet on and then I yeah I realized that I think it was a 200 pounds accumulator or something which is where I was at then about 200 pounds each time put that on and as soon as I put it on I had that kind of familiar gut feeling of being on the roller coaster of gambling again and just thinking like can't wait for this to end. I'd heard about this GamStop software, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a kind of third-party thing where you can go and sign up, choose a self-exclusion of a year, five years, six months, whatever. I chose the maximum amount of time possible, self-excluded, and then, yeah, that was pretty much it for mm-hmm. me. Like, looking back in it, those two things, like the credit card ban, even though it wasn't on when I was gambling, and GamStop, those two things highlight how measures can be introduced that can reduce gambling harm and and help people to show that that you know that is possible i confided in a few friends but not too many friends they're all very well intentioned but the main crux that i'd get out of them the main thing i got out of them was you just need to stop which is yeah is well intentioned but it demonstrates a, a wider like misunderstanding of addiction yeah so it's similar to mental health mate you get the same sort of well intentioned yes. but unfortunately yeah. meaningless platitudes from a lot of friends and it's it's weirdly for me, mate, the people who give me the best advice are a couple of very close friends who really understand mm-hmm. it, but also just mental health advocates online. Has that been the same experience for you when it comes to like people you've spoken to about gambling addiction? It's other addicts or maybe other people involved in the sphere who've given you better advice? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, yeah, I do some therapy as well. That advice is obviously always very good. I think you do need someone with a, with either kind of training or that shared lived experience because yeah it's all very well intentioned but it's akin to like 
telling a depressed person to cheer up, isn't it? Like, or like, you know, what have you got to be sad about? It may come from a good place, and it practically all of the time does come from a good place, but it just highlights a, a bit of a misunderstanding, doesn't it? Mm. And if the people who are well-intentioned misunderstand it, then it shows what we're up against in, in changing in the public opinion and, you know, advocating a, a public health-focused approach to everything. Yeah. Before we move on to your recovery journey, mate, the argument of agency versus addiction is one that's I guess sometimes discussed with addicts and often it's an uncomfortable one and I'm always very keen to have the uncomfortable conversations on this podcast when it comes to mental health where do you stand on that debate Tom and and how much agency do you give to perhaps an addict who at their worst or maybe at rock bottom might steal money from friends or lie to people or lie to family to fuel their habit or maybe break promises about trying to quit Sure. Well, I mean, there's a degree of responsibility for everything. I don't think we should hide from that. But what you see specifically with gambling is that the addiction is kind of, it's facilitated and it's actually encouraged through the legislation. I think it's encouraged through law. And if you look at the current UK gambling industry currently takes about 14, 15 billion profit a year. And actually of that 14, 15 billion profit, between 60 and 80% comes from just 5% of gamblers. So actually addiction is integral to their business model like they essentially by reducing gambling harms they would have to reduce their profits which is why there's a lot of kickback against it at the minute but if you look at things like you mentioned like perhaps you might somebody might steal money another thing that is being pushed for in the current gambling act review is checks on where where money is coming from especially if it's a large amount of money if it's being gambled somebody on the walk a couple of weeks ago he was awaiting sentencing on the walk he took 1.3 million pounds from his employers over a period of time and he was able to it was he got sentenced uh, a couple of weeks ago actually there was some media coverage around it at the time but the bookmakers had been accepting this money and like not asking where it comes from so there's there's a dual accountability there i think that in that example clearly he shouldn't have stolen the money but also you do have to allow for the fact that addicted brains they're not able to rationally think and the, the current existing regulation and framework facilitated and allowed that to happen. Whereas if there was something in place that when somebody puts a large amount of money in, you need to prove where it comes from, then that could help that kind of stuff. I think he was faking pay slips with a Microsoft Paint, I think, to show that he earned more money than he did so he, he could get away with it. They didn't do their due diligence there. I think a, a balanced approach is needed. It's not all on the individual or all on the industry. But balanced approach is, yeah, is, is what we want, which essentially a, a public health focused approach would be. When it comes to your recovery journey, Tom, how has that been for you? Obviously, you've talked about things like GamStop, but as we know, recovery is never a straight line and something that I've had to learn myself along this way. You've had a couple of relapses since you made the decision to stop. How did those relapses affect your mental health? Was there a trigger for them? And then tell me about the stigma behind maybe the concept of relapse itself. Sure, yeah. So as I mentioned, I I used GamStop to block myself from online. And then there were a couple of instances afterwards where I would, where I kind of popped into into the bookies. I think perhaps maybe one was around the last World Cup in 2018. And I think for me, it's relates to what we were talking about earlier with the how it's a lot easier to gamble on your phone and you know gambling shops they're not nice places yeah i think the relapses probably occurred whilst i was perhaps feeling anxious and stuff and subconsciously that was just a a, a way to to deflect from there and you're right recovery is never a, a straight line but 
I think I had the sort of, like I said, there's a couple of minor, like £20, £30 here and there relapses, which involve going into betting shops. But I realised I felt myself slipping down there, and I realised that I'm privileged in a sense to, to say that I felt myself doing that and was able to walk out, because I know a lot of people aren't. But for whatever reason, I was able to, you know, speaking to friends helped, therapy helped. I never had any sort of addiction-specific therapy, but I did discuss the role on a deeper level that the gambling was playing within other types of therapy which really helped and since then actually I've, I think being aware that for me it, it was a thing that that masks primarily like anxiety I've just found and developed much better cheaper ways to deal with anxiety like keeping fit going for a run going for a bike ride listening to a nice podcast things like that so it's a lot of strings to the bow of recovery it's different for everybody but certainly for me it was a combination of talking with people, talking with a therapist, finding other things to fill your time and actually the big step actually. So this was obviously the first one, the Scotland to Wembley where I joined for four days was actually the the first one that I joined in person because as we touched on earlier the March one was remote so you just joined in from your local area and actually that was very therapeutic because you knew that everybody there could identify with your situation, there was going to be no judging or anything, there was no stigma and these people who are sort of part of the wider recovery community, we kind of interact with them quite a lot on Twitter. So I kind of was aware of who they were, what they looked like, what their story was. But actually to meet everyone and, you know, go on like a 30 mile walk where you need something to keep going. I found that a really useful tool in continued recovery. And every single person I spoke to on the walk, even if it was, I say even, but like a there were affected others there who hadn't been harmed directly by gambling themselves and they found that the walk was an incredibly useful tool for them in understanding the kind of journey and the process that their affected other went through and their addiction and yeah I think it was a very therapeutic and helpful experience. I want to reflect on your journey now Tom if we can before we move on to the mental health chat. If you could go back and speak to that Tom who was gambling in toilets to escape being with people or in his room putting accumulators on what would you say to him knowing what you do now I would say you're not alone I think because I think part of the issue with the kind of stigma and the normalization of gambling addiction is that it makes you feel like you are alone and you're the only person that kind of has this because until relatively recently it's not been perhaps in in public focus in terms of addiction I think yeah I think I'd just say you're not alone We've come to the final topic of conversation on this podcast, Tom, and it's one I try and have at least with all my special guests, which is a general natter, general chat about mental health. So firstly, how's your mental health at the moment, mate? Very good, actually. I've learned to kind of manage many of the things that's ever got me as anxiety and just rumination and worrying and stuff, but I've learned, sorry, to manage that in productive and positive ways, basically. So yeah, I'm pretty good. Amazing. And what age do you think you were, mate, when you first became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having inside of you weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I would say maybe around about 13, 14. Okay. And why was that? Yeah, I'd say about 13 or 14 when I perhaps started identifying and like speaking with other people on a deeper level, especially friends, and found that people perhaps approached things and thought about things in a perhaps a different way to, to what I did. So I kind of started looking at myself then a bit more, I think, 
I think until that age, I just assumed that everyone was like me or I was like everyone. When you had that first conversation about your mental health with someone, mate, whether it was a friend or whether it was someone else, how did it go? Who was it with? Did you feel like a part of you had changed or you'd entered a new chapter in your life or a big burden had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it seem quite normal and quite insignificant at the time? How do you look back on it? Probably seemed quite insignificant at the time, I think. Yeah, I don't remember it kind of being like a big groundbreaking conversation. But I do think when you kind of get into your late 20s and things, that's when I started opening up to more, especially like male friends about mental health. And I think there were a lot of significant conversations that were had then and they were positive. And actually, everyone I think has their own stuff going on. And yeah, we need to encourage people to talk about it. And I think when you're able to do that, the load is lightened, you know. What triggers do you have in life that affect your mental health, Tom? Whether that's in gambling or outside of it, it could be a sound, it could be a social environment, it could be a particular situation, it could be something that someone says to you, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I haven't figured them all out yet, but one of the main ones actually that gets me is like if I'm tired, like if I'm really tired, and I don't necessarily mean if I'm worn out because I've only had five or six hours sleep, like sometimes you can kind of wear yourself out by committing to do too much especially like as we've come out of lockdown and stuff there was a lot to catch up on but I was mindful of just keeping it light and not overexerting and perhaps whereas maybe I don't know 10 years ago I'd have people pleased and done everything and attended like three pub gatherings in a day with different groups of mates I've learned now to like just say no and to look after myself really keep myself energized and feeling good and then what tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't worked out for you? In terms of ones that have worked, therapy really works. Other ones that work when I get up, I do 10 minutes mindfulness. That really works for me, you know, just sitting and taking some time to just be present, I suppose. I have tried doing it at night time, but I find the morning is a harder time to do it. So I try and do it then because I'm often like, okay, what have we got to do? We've got to do this. We've got this meeting. We've got to send that email. I've got to get this done. But just to be able to take a step back is useful, especially yeah, especially in the morning, set you up, set yourself up for the day well. Another one, it sounds like quite an obvious, perhaps we take it for granted, but exercise, getting out for a run or getting out on the bike or even just for a walk, things like that, they really help me. Again, being mindful of stuff like if you drink too much, then you're going to feel crappy for a couple of days, things like that. And you also asked which ones I've found that, that haven't worked. I don't think I've come across any that haven't worked that are supposed to work, want the better word. I mean, obviously, gambling didn't work. But yeah, I think all the ones, the, the kind of handful that I've tried have, have all worked quite well for me, luckily. We also talk a lot on this podcast, Tom, about two ideas, toxic masculinity and positive masculinity. Hopefully in a few more years, maybe a few more pods, maybe I'm optimistic, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority and masculinity will just be positive masculinity or positive masculinity will just be masculinity. What would you define for either of those? So some guests have talked about positive masculinity, for example, as being self-confidence, self-awareness, empathy, supporting other men in their lives, not man shaming. What can you tell me about these two ideas from your perspective? Yeah, so I think toxic masculinity is a bit of a scourge on society. It's just built on this idea that like men, boys, somehow have to be these kind of like macho, alpha male people that kind of can't talk about their feelings. And yeah, I think that's really not doing anybody any good. 
I've certainly experienced that with like, as I'm sure you'll have gleaned from the conversation we've just had, I've always been a, a sensitive and empathetic person, which, you know, has drawn fire from people like somehow that makes you weak or something or yeah people might kind of call you weak or worse words yeah of course yeah <laughs> just going through a few there none of which I'll repeat <laughs> I don't know it reflects perhaps more on them but they're the kind of people who exude this toxic masculinity although them themselves they are by engaging in it they're, they're obviously not helping but I think it's it's part of a broader thing they don't end up being like that in isolation you know it's, it's part of a kind of idea about how we think men should be. Moving on to positive masculinity, I've not heard that phrase before, but I, I do really like it. And yeah, I mean, hopefully, like you say, that's going to become the new normal. You know, I think it helps to see men speak out in the kind of media in support of a more sort of rounded view of masculinity. I know there's been a few programmes on over the past few years. Rio Ferdinand did a very good one, didn't he? He was done too, yeah. Too, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, his brother did a good one as well. Yeah, I watched Antoine's one. Racism. Amazing, amazing. It was very good, wasn't it? Very honest and open. Stephen Manderson, didn't he? Professor Green, he did. He did some good ones. I know his dad committed suicide, I believe. So he did a few years ago now some things about male mental health and suicide. I would define positive masculinity by just just being a bit more empathetic and understanding and realizing, yeah, you don't have to be some kind of alpha male hard man to be a man it's not what a man is anymore and as a final question tom what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it i think definitely hearing stories of similar experiences is very helpful we just touched on rio ferdinand but i think you know he was a kind of wasn't really a football hard man was he but he was still he was, a he was an alpha male. Yeah. He was an alpha male, yeah, he definitely is an alpha male, yeah. Hearing people like that kind of open up and, and share experiences I think is very useful. Giving people a platform, a space. You mentioned earlier that you'd been in touch with mental health advocates on Twitter. Twitter can be a, a toxic sphere sometimes, but I also think it, it's more good than it is bad. I think that gives people a good platform to speak and speak with like-minded individuals. I think those two things are key really encouraging people to talk about their mental health and showing them that other people have maybe people who would be considered macho alpha males have opened up and then giving them the tools to be able to do so tom fleming thank you so much for coming on the just checking in podcast pleasure thanks very much for having me Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thanks to Tom from The Big Step for being my special guest for this episode and for letting me check in with him. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Tom and also The Big Step on social media in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the venters who've tuned in to this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell everyone you know about this podcast and share the good word about Vent. If you're feeling generous, write us a review or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us out with those precious algorithms. If you want to support us further and you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe and that link is available in the link tree on all our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Vent.